It reminds me of two things from the early days. We just about were a choir as we began. We were pretty equally set up with about two people for part, uh, and that was it. But the other memory is, uh, I'm not sure if it's still true, but when they started giving choices for not ringtones on cell phones, but caller ID on landlines, you children ask your parents about that sometime, but uh, rumor had it that my caller ID at the Munger household was some Christmas song, because... um, well, I would listen to Christmas music in my car all the time. I had a, well, a cassette of a cassette of a cassette of an album. Robert Shaw and the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra and Chorus. It was some powerful stuff. And I listened to that all year long. But we'll divert from that. Psalm 75 this evening, and while you're turning, uh, I neglected this morning. I had it written right in front of me. And still managed to forget, but uh, let's remember uh, Angie Bogus' surgery is this Wednesday, so let's be in prayer for her. I didn't check, but I hope, I think Derek would have that in the bulletin, and we've mentioned it in the prayer meetings already. But let's remember her this Wednesday, and if you would like to help with meals and uh, gather, it might even be more helpful um, next week than this week, but just check with Jan, if you would, if you want to do any help for meals for the Bogus's. in Angie's recovery, but pray for her on Wednesday. The Lord will give success uh, to this. Psalm 75, we've been looking at this little segment of Psalms, the Psalms of Asaph, and we'll read together this one as our psalm for this evening. Unto thee, O God, do we give thanks. Unto thee do we give thanks, for that thy name is near, thy wondrous works declare. When I shall receive the congregation, I will judge uprightly. The earth and all the inhabitants thereof are dissolved. I bear up the pillars of it. Selah. I said unto the fools, deal not foolishly. And to the wicked, lift not up the horn. Lift not up your horn on high. Speak not with a stiff neck. For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is full of mixture, and he poureth out of the same. But the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth, shall wring them out and drink them. But I will declare forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked also will I cut off. But the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. Well, amen. Again, we trust the Lord to prosper the reading of His Word. Let's bow our heads together this evening. Heavenly Father, tonight we come happy to sing the praises of a worthy Savior. And Lord, happy to read inspired words in these psalms that in many ways are sober reflections of the difficulties and even rebellion in this cursed earth. That there is promise. That there is hope. That there is a God who sees and knows. And we ask that tonight You will give us the encouragements even of this very psalm. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 
Some that I read said that Psalm 75 is a reassuring psalm, and in some ways it's particularly in season, as it were, to follow on from the request that closed Psalm 74. These are individual psalms to be sure, although these, save that one Psalm 50 that's set apart from the others, this series of psalms from 73 to 83 are the psalms of Asaph and of Asaph's choir. The sequencing may have been deliberate as the books of the Psalter were collected to follow on from that request. And if you just read there to be reminded, that sober psalm ends with a request, Arise, O God, plead thine own cause. I think of that phrase often in days of the weakness of the church, the smallness of the faithful church in many ways just numerically, but just the spiritual temperature and abilities of the church in such an age that it is indeed an age in where it seems in every case necessary for God to plead His own cause. How little ability and power we have to plead it. But this psalm is a psalm that reassures God's people in seasons of distress or seasons of uncertainty. And as you look at the psalm, it's a psalm that in some ways is easy to divide. It opens and closes with thanksgiving. Verse 1 is thanksgiving. Verses 9 and 10 together close out the psalm with thanksgiving. And then, coupled in between the thanksgivings, there's a divine oracle. There's a section where God is the speaker. And then a section that's a prophetic oracle where the psalmist (coughs) is the speaker. And so we just will follow on through the psalm itself and recognize the division and the progression within it. But verse 1 again, the thanksgiving that we read, Unto Thee, O God, do we give thanks. Unto Thee do we give thanks. There's a repetition here that the psalmist gives in bringing thanksgiving and praise to God. Here the thanks are prompted by memory, and memory is prompted by recital. One has said, Doubling up the repetition in the psalm, and the psalm, of course, to be repeated among the Lord's people. I don't want to <clears throat> go into a, a side uh, discussion on the merits or demerits of liturgy. Uh, there's part of me that has a very soft spot for liturgical churches because I think sequence and repetition are very helpful things in the worship of God and in the memory of God's people. We're not liturgical, and yet we seek to repeat. We seek to include all the various pieces of worship in our gatherings. Here, the psalmist, sorry, I was tempted to go a little further in my little sidetrack there. I'll just go a little step further. Liturgical churches, they say the flesh can corrupt anything. In a liturgical church, and there are orthodox liturgies beyond Rome and its unorthodox tradition, but orthodox liturgy can come to the point where it's an empty repetition. The mind isn't engaged because the words are all provided. And so the flesh can corrupt the repetition, even the repetition of good and orthodox and scriptural statements and creeds. Then if you go to pure spontaneity in worship, 
Well, how does the flesh corrupt that? Emptiness. Vain repetitions. Statements that are devoid of thought and of preparation. So I think the happy medium between these things is where often we, we need to be. But the psalmist repeats his thanks. It's doubled. And then he mentions that thy name is near thy wondrous works declared. Always in Scripture, God's name, and we could say His names. On a couple occasions in the last week where I've been in prayer with people, one I'm sure was with our brother Greg, but just thankful for the different names, the different titles that God has given to us of Himself in Scripture. And that Thy name is near, the psalmist recognizes. Again, the name. Names, part of his self-revelation. And then he says, thy wondrous works declare. God's acts, his redemptive acts, God intervening in history, and of course Israel can look at that in her national history, but we can look back, and particularly as New Testament Christians, on this side of the resurrection, We can see God's intervention in history is not letting the fall and the curse and the ruin that came because of it be the last chapter of the story. He's acted. He's intervened. And we see those redemptive works and acts in history. They declare who He is. And so the psalmist and we give thanks. But from verse 2, We have the beginning of the divine oracle. And here, God then speaks, When I shall receive the congregation, I will judge uprightly. If you have a marginal reading, you'll see from verse 2 that there's the reading of a set time. The set time that God has. When we come to seasons of perplexity or weariness, The fact that there's a set time in which God will judge. There's bedrock there. We might not know when, and we can say as the previous psalm and many other places in the Psalter and in Scripture, Lord, how long? You see the cry from under the altar in the book of Revelation of the martyred saints. Lord, how long are you going to allow this blood that is on the hands of the man of sin and really throughout history all those that were forerunners of such a one? How long will it be till you avenge the blood of your servants? Well, it isn't always given for us to know how long. But the fact that God has a set time, that God will judge the earth. The scriptures speak about God bringing every work into judgment. Things done in secret will be uttered on the housetops. Things that The ungodly think they get away with. They don't. They haven't. God knows. And so this set time for God's judgment, I say, is an assurance for God's people. Then you come to the third verse. (coughs) The earth and all the inhabitants thereof are dissolved. I bear up the pillars of it. In the time intervening before the set time of judgment, 
It is God that sovereignly controls the outflow of history. God keeps things stable, if you will, until His time. I always think of Genesis chapter 8 after the flood when the environmentalists start telling us how many more years we have to live, how many deadlines have we already outlived. While the earth remaineth, God says, seed time and harvest, summer and winter, cold and heat going to abide because it's his world he controls it he ordains it he sustains it until that time when you think of God's sustaining the earth you think of the things that occur in that realm that we speak of as common grace the rain falling on the just and the unjust alike trying to remember one of the definitions of common grace on a test along the way Every mercy, every good thing that flows from the hand of God to us and to the world short of salvation. The ungodly receive often many blessings from the hand of God. And even the stability of the earth is a part of that blessing. He's withholding that set time, that day of wrath. And of course we know the gracious purpose underneath that we spoke of this morning in the Great Commission and the calling of a people from every nation. God will hold things stable until His time. His hands of restraint until that day is given. And if you look at verses 2 and 3 then and you see God's sovereign control and you see His restraint and you see His common grace, these are parts of the oracle God speaks here that are reassuring to the godly. But His oracle continues. In verses 4 and 5 turn to the ungodly. I said unto the fools, deal not foolishly into the wicked, lift not up the horn, lift not up your horn on high, speak not with a stiff neck. The horn in Scripture is an emblem of strength. You think of the many animals with horns, a bull, the oxen, there's strength that is within this, and so the horn speaks of strength. You think of the foolish that attempt to lift up their horn. The wicked that want to exert their strength in opposition to God. We read recently in Acts that statement of Gamaliel, just that phrase as he gave the Pharisees and Sadducees and the council the charge to leave these apostles alone. If this works of men, it's going to fall apart like everything else has fallen apart. When the leader dies, it just fades out. So he says, if it's of men, it'll go away on its own. If it's of God, well, how can you fight against God? I don't know if Gamaliel was among those ultimately that we read of in Acts. Many among the chief priests believed. But the council certainly sure. You can't fight against God. And you know, the times in which we see injustice, we see wrongs that are done, and people get away with it, as it were. Here's comfort and assurance to know, particularly for those perhaps that are sinned against. This talk that's 
bandied about in the news today frivolously very often, but they don't get justice. Wrongs go unchecked. Truth doesn't prevail. In the final day, truth does prevail. And wrongs are dealt with. And for those that shake their fist and lift up their horn, as it were, against God, and there's no voice here, there's no institution here to check that and to punish that or put that down, well, these, though they appear to be getting away with it, as it were, in this life, they've just drawn a circle and stepped into the ring to fight with God and challenge God to deal with them. Well, here we're reassured God is up to the challenge. What folly it is to lift up the horn, to fight against God. What arrogance, what foolishness. <clears throat> From verse 6, the prophetic oracle begins and the prophet of the psalmist response. For promotion cometh neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. Here this reference to the east and the south and the west is not so much points on a compass, but it's the issue of inaccessibility. Search where you will. There's no other judge, there's no other arbiter. God, and God will be the arbiter of truth. God here will promote ultimately that which is good and put down that which is bad. And even in the days intervening, where we see verse 7, He putteth down one and setteth up another. The days in which He would raise up such as a Nebuchadnezzar or a Pharaoh. Wicked men promoting wicked things. What purpose does God Overrule with. To show His glory. To show His power. Pharaoh, the classic example, both in the history of the Old Testament and referenced in the New Testament in Romans. Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee. God may allow wickedness seemingly to prevail for a season. That his ultimate purpose will not be thwarted. He will get glory. He will put down evil. And you see from verse 8, vivid imagery here, and it's common imagery in Scripture. In the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, it is full of mixture, and he poureth out the same. And you see this imagery of God's cup of wrath, again it meets us, Elsewhere in Scripture, even ultimately the very closing chapters of Revelation, that cup of God's wrath that is full. It's full, we see. It is well mixed with spice. It's red. And it will be drunk as we read continuing on. It will be drunk down to the very dregs. The end of verse 8, The dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth, shall wring them out and drink them. So let us take courage as we see what appears to be evil prevailing. We see what appears to be seasons of injustice, seasons of wrong. In the end, God's wrath will be poured out. From verse 9 then, after the oracle, there's a return to thanksgiving, to the declaring of verse 1 and praise. But I will declare forever 
I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked also will I cut off. The strength of the ungodly is not strength at all. It's but apparent. It's fleeting. It's part of the vapor of this life. But then we read the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. One has said this with regard to the psalm and the peace that it gives through times of trouble and watching with perplexity. Patience and suffering are not the end of the story. There will be a time, and I thought this an interesting phrase, there will be a time for power without aggression and of glory without pride. when strength and the advancement is that which is ordained of God. But I think of the difference between the ungodly, the selfish mind and that of the godly. There's a selfish mindset that thinks, well, there's only, as it were, so much good to be achieved and gained in this life. And so the wicked seek to grasp that by any means possible, even if it means putting others down disobeying God in the process. And in reality, it is God that is the ultimate good. In His presence, there's fullness of joy. We read elsewhere in the Psalter. There's an endless supply of glory. There's an endless supply of good and of joy and of praise to be rendered to the God that bestows these things. Think often of that <clears throat> message I preach here, I guess, now more than once over the years on idolatry. Why every Christian should believe in many gods, if you remember the title. What is the conclusion of that? Only the true God can satisfy. And in Him, there is satisfaction for the deepest longings, the eternal longings that are placed in the human heart. God will never disappoint people. There'll never be a point in eternity future which we so feebly call it in which our God will have to look at us and say, I'm sorry, but there's nothing more of myself, there's nothing more of my glory that I can show you. No, our God will never run dry. He will indeed satisfy His people. What of those that lift up the horn, those that shake their fist in the face of God? What if they, as Asaph and some of these other more melancholy psalms have struggled with? They seek to advance. They seek to gain. They seek to come to power and to pleasures in this life. And from one perspective, it appears they succeed. They gain these things. And the nice guy you know, finishes last. What have they gained? What does a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? To be at the top of the hill, if you will, and that which is a vapor, an accursed vapor of that. Or to be among those the meek that inherit the earth. Those who have their horns, we read, exalted. 
because they're united to the king. They're married to the heir. And they inherit all things. Here's a psalm mingled in with these somewhat more melancholy psalms of Asaph. For the answer to the perplexities, the reassurance in seasons of distress or uncertainty is given. We know the end of the story. We know that even in the things that don't make sense to us now, God is controlling even them. And God will right wrongs. He'll manifest His glory because He'll manifest Himself. Be numbered with Him be identified with him in that day. What a day indeed it will be. Well, let's bow our heads together. We close our Sabbath again asking the Lord's presence with us as we go through this week. Our Heavenly Father, we tonight are grateful that you have recorded in your word truth for us to rest upon bedrock that is ours when the questions would perhaps be difficult and many the answers can at the same time be profound and yet simple you rule even when it might appear for a brief season that you don't you do you overrule evil for good you're the one that puts down one and puts up another And we thank you tonight that all this that is true of yourself is true of our Heavenly Father. So prosper your word to us. Give us strength and wisdom in the things that will face us even in this very week. We again lift our young people and those serving them and ministering to them this week and pray protection and great spiritual help for one and all. Prosper us as we go now our separate ways to our homes. For every joy and every trial that falls from above, that we would recognize your hand. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and worthy name.